Um, one other announcement is um, when I came here, one of the jobs I want to do was to establish regular rhythms for a men's ministry. And we've got that in place now. Past COVID, we've been able to develop regular meeting. And what I've been looking to do is do two semesters where we um, have a Monday night meeting where like any person, whether new to the church or whatever, could come. And, and we call that our Black Eagle men's study. And um, that goes semester-based. And we've been doing like biblical worldview on tough topics. I've also wanted to establish two retreats a year, um, a local retreat, which we had in April, and then we're going to be going on an overnight men's retreat to the coast coming up in September, and then begin to develop some quarterly men's breakfast. So I just wanted to have like a calendar that we could put in place so we don't have to reinvent things year after year. And by God's grace, that's in place. So now I'm not somebody that likes handing, uh, hanging on to ministries ever. So as soon as I establish something, my goal is to train the people to take my spot. And um, I would like to develop a men's ministry team so that it's not a one-man show. If there's anybody that would be interested, right now, what I'm looking to do is just to develop that calendar out and to take the things that we have and bring depth to them and bring a plurality of voices to them. Um, After that, we can start to think through different things to add to the men's ministry. But I'm not looking to create busyness for already busy men. We want to take the things that we have and make them as deep and authentic as possible. So if you're interested in joining a team of men that want to minister to men, please let me know. I'm eventually going to have a meeting probably sometime in July, but just informally, if you're interested in that, please talk to me. So anyway, we are back in the study of 1 Samuel chapter 19. Last week, when Steve led us in chapter 18, we saw three distinct parts of that story. We saw David and Jonathan's friendship. We saw Saul's jealousy. And then we saw David marrying Saul's daughter, Michael. This week, we're going to see a near mirror reflection on how the passage is going to break out. It's going to start with David and Jonathan's friendship. It's going to go into Saul's jealousy. And then it's going to go into... David and Saul's daughter, Michael. And um, the difference is going to be, those stories are going to be repeated, but this time Saul's heart is just a little bit harder. And then he's given over to that hard heart, and then it becomes a lot harder. So I just want to lay my premise out from the beginning, because it's so clear in this passage. Scripture is very clear that a hard heart is not something that you should play around with. tells us in Psalm 95, and the psalmist is quoted in the book of Hebrews, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. And I swore in my wrath that they would not enter into my rest. God warns us against allowing our hearts to harden. Romans 1 gives you kind of a theological understanding of that. If you're familiar with it, if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to go and read chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. But it has this like four-step degradation where people refuse to acknowledge God as God, and then their hearts harden. And then they refuse to worship him as such and start worshiping his creation, and then their hearts are hardened even still. Today we're going to see like a story version of that descent that you see in Romans chapter 1. So um, with that said, I'm sure this passage sounds like it's going to be a downer. It's not. There's a lot of hurdles that people need to step over on their way to a hard heart. Because you have a father who loves you, 
who cares about you, who cares about the condition of your heart, and he doesn't want your heart to become hard and unresponsive. So there's going to be, as we see this descent, this decay of Saul, you're going to see these four steps of redemption and rescue right alongside of them. So before I get into Saul's downward spiral, I want to give you wisdom from a man that I met when I was in a really, really vulnerable spot. I was saved about a week. I was in rehab, and it was a bad place, just a bunch of scallywags in this place. And I've been, I'm not bragging, just being honest, I've been in multiple programs before that, rehabs, jails, institutions, the things that you end up in when you're an addict. I was in those scared straight programs back in the 90s. Anybody remember those when they were on TV where somebody like screams in your face and you know they can't hit you? So when you're like a wise guy like I was, you're like, get out of my face, guy. But as hardened as I thought I was, I'm in this rehab and this guy walks in about this tall. He was a professional jockey. And in his addiction, he had a horse kick out and cave inside of his face. He was thrown into a fire, and his body was covered in burns. Walks in with one eye, and he had a dollar bill in his hand. And he just goes, spits in it, and then crumples it, chucks it, steps on it a few times, and then kicks it out to the crew of us. And he's like, so who would want this? And like I told you, we were a room full of scallywags and drugs and addicts, so we're all about to go dive on it, you know? <laughs> and he's like, why would you want it? Said, because it's, it's worth something. And then he proceeded to say, you know, I've been stepped on, I've been kicked, I've been spit upon, but I'm worth something today too. And I remember just being shocked. I was like, whoa, what is this? And as he told his story, I was identifying and I was fearful of all of the spots where my story hadn't gotten into yet, I thought, I've gone about as far down the elevator as you could go. So I stopped him afterwards, and I, I was just in awe of this guy. And he gave me a piece of advice that I want to pass along as we go into our passage. He said, you know, just because your elevator hasn't gone down as far as mine doesn't mean that it can't. But there's good news. You get to hit the stop button and get off at any point. And that's what I want to show you in the life of Saul. This elevator is going down. And we see the elevator stop at four different floors, and people get off. But he chooses to continue to ride it down to the basement. So we're going to see four stops going to the basement. For any of you note-takers, I never made notes in opposite descending order before, but like I said, he's going to end up in the basement. So we're going to start off at floor three, Saul and Jonathan. That's the first seven verses. Then we're going to see Saul and his spear when we stop on the second floor. Then we're going to go down to floor one and Saul and his daughter, Michael. And then we're going to get to the basement of Saul wrestling with God's spirit. So if you would stand with me, I'm going to read the first seven verses and then we'll pray. It says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard and in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. 
And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we look at the hardening heart of Saul, that we would choose life today. Lord, that today, if we hear your voice, that we would... um, ask for a fresh filling, and that your spirit would take hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So it starts out with Saul sharing his diabolical plan in verse 1. It says, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. So Jonathan here is referred to as Jonathan, his son. I want you to keep an eye on that as we go through the text. That's going to become important. And, and Saul instructs his son and his servants to kill David. You know, there had been animosity up to this point. Saul has attempted to allow David to be killed through the exploits that he would put him into. Even by rage, he chucked a spear at him in the previous chapter. But David keeps on not dying. And that's a problem to Saul. So now he's lost his patience, and the hardening of Saul's heart really begins to become evident. I mean, previously he wanted to put David in a position where he could die, and now he's actually plotting the murder of this man. And you see David and Jonathan's friendship in verses 2 and 3, which has been really big in these last couple of chapters. It says, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on the guard in the morning and stay in the secret place and hide yourself. So he tells him about his father's intent. And he refers to him as Saul, my father. You know, fascinatingly enough, it's Jonathan, Saul's son, twice in the first verse. It says that two times. And Saul is referred to as Saul, my father, three times in just these next two verses. And it stands out. Like, that's awkward writing to have to repeat my son, my son, my father, my father, my father, all in the course of just three short verses. So I checked out a bunch of commentators, and they were great. They also pointed out that they saw what I saw in the text, but none of them gave a reason why. So um, what, what I see, take it for what it's worth, because I'm not a commentary writer, is Saul is trying so hard not to lose his grip on his kingdom that he doesn't even notice that he's losing his son in the process. And I think that's why you keep having this father-son thing that's repeated. He's so focused on what's out there that could be taken from him, what's out there that he could stand to lose. He doesn't understand that he's losing his child in the process. It's hard stuff. So Jonathan asks three things of David in verses 2 and 3. He says, be on your guard. I want you to go and find a secret place. And I want you to hide yourself there. And then Jonathan says, I will go out, in verse 3. He says, I will go out and stand beside my father in the field 
where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. So Jonathan's plan is to go stand beside his father in the midst of his rage and at the father's side to go and intercede for David. There's a beautiful little messianic picture of what you see the son doing to the father as he's interceding on David's behalf. And when you read Jonathan's rebuke in verses 4 and 5, and before I break down his rebuke, there was a quote that I read this week that I'd like to share. Um, This is from a man named John Woodhouse. And he said, True to his word, Jonathan met with his father and raised the difficult subject of David. It seems clear that Jonathan had thought about what he would say. His argument was rhetorically vigorous, logically persuasive, morally convincing, and theologically powerful. Um, I'm going to read to you verses 4 and 5, and it's only two verses, but Jonathan has 11 different clauses that he uses as he's making this petition about David to uh, his father. It says, um, look with me at verses 4 and 5, and Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it, and you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And I actually broke out all 11 things that Jonathan said to his father, because I think if, if, if you were going to confront somebody And you know that they were about to make an egregious sin. I would encourage you, let this passage serve as like a template. Let it be something that you go back and read and humbly pray over. So first, Jonathan speaks well of David. It's an awesome thing to do. If you're going to go and confront somebody about their misconceptions about someone. I've been sick all week and I have a really stuffy nose, so my words aren't coming out. Right, but yeah, if you're going to go confront somebody about their misconceptions, start with truth. And he shares the truth about who David is. Then he tells him that his actions would be sin. He's clear about this. He doesn't say this would be unwise, this would be foolish, this is maybe something that you should reconsider. He says this would be sin if you were to go and do this. And to compound that, he then points out David's righteousness for the third part. This would be sin, and he's not sinned against you. And then he reminds Saul that in David's prosperity, Saul has been given prosperity. You've benefited when he benefits. So why are you so jealous, Saul? Because in his prosperity, you have prospered. And then he reminds the king that David risked his life for him. And that awesome show of love and loyalty that David had. And then he reminds the king of David's victory over Goliath and how David was the man that was able to save a nation. And then he reminds Saul who did the work and who got the glory. He says, do you not see that the Lord brought about such a great salvation? You sure you want to be fighting with this guy? And then he reminds Saul of the way he initially responded. He said, when you saw David work those works, don't you remember? You saw it. And you rejoiced. And then he asks Saul about his sin directly. He says, so are you going to continue to sin? And then he reminds him of David's righteousness a second time, just to compound. And then he tells them that all of this is without cause. I mean, all 11 of those things that he 
peppers his father with are so persuasive when you look at them one after another. But the one that I just want to come back to and hit on is he said, you saw it and you rejoiced. What a scary thing to have said about you in the past tense. And I remember when you, you saw God work, you saw it back then. You rejoiced. It, it reminds you of the scary warning in Hebrews chapter 6. And it talks about those who have come close and they've tasted the good things of the kingdom. And then they turn their backs on it. You know, there have been times, I've been pastoring for 20 years. Like, I've seen a lot of people come to know Jesus or claim a faith in Jesus and then return like a dog to their vomit. And occasionally, because I'm like this, uh, I'll ask them, so has life gotten any better outside of Christ than it was back when I was in the world? Are you happier with the decisions? Because I remember seeing you around church, and I remember joy. I remember when you had purpose in your life, and it was to follow Jesus, and your countenance was not as crestfallen as it is. You saw it, and you rejoiced. That's why Jonathan's bringing this up to his father. He's saying, don't you remember what it was like when you saw it and rejoiced? And can't you see what jealousy and bitterness has done to your heart? Maybe that would have been a good question to ask Saul. Is this better? Are you happier now than you used to be? And then this section ends with um, Jonathan versus Saul being compared and contrasted. It says... In verse 6, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan and swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So there's two verbs here used of Saul. He listens, and that shouldn't be all that surprising. Like if you've seen the rebukes that Saul's taken in this book so far, the guy can kind of take a punch. I'll give him that. I mean, he weasels out of it right afterwards. But he's the kind of guy that you could be like, what have you done? And he's like, yeah, I know. Can you just go honor me in front of the people now? I mean, we good, right? We good. No, we're not good, Saul. Um, so he listens, and then he swears right afterwards. He says, I swear. I'm, I'm not going to harm him. You know, swearing is often the folly of Saul. How many times he swears something just to go back on it. But I also just want to throw out that um, swearing is a pretty common deflection of people caught in sin. You know, I shared with you my struggles with addiction earlier in life. Do you know how many times before I finally burned those last bridges? I swear! I'm done, man. I've seen the light. Jesus himself sat next to me in the cop car. And I'm never going to do this again until tomorrow, right? Um, It is so much easier to swear about something in the future than have to sit in the reality of the present. (laughs) That's why manipulative people do their game plan. Like, Can I just get you to buy in on this polished up future better me? And maybe we could stop looking at the present version that doesn't really care about obeying. And then there's three, verses, there's three verbs used of Jonathan. So Saul talked, right? He listened and he swore. Jonathan called, Jonathan reported, Jonathan brought. Jonathan's a man of action. And he's trying to work about a salvation between David and this rage-filled father. But unfortunately, the elevator goes down and we're about to go down the floor too. So look with me at verses 8 through 10. It says, and there was war again, 
And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon Saul and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. So Saul was being contrasted with his son Jonathan before, and now he's going to be contrasted with David pretty strongly in these three verses. And it starts out with saying there's war again, and that's an indictment against Saul. If you remember back when he was anointed and made king over the people, he was told, if you will follow God's ways, that he will vanquish the Philistines and remove war from the land all of the days of your rule. Well, almost every chapter in the book Previously, for the last five chapters, and until the end of Saul's life, is going to begin with, and there was war again, as an indictment against his just abandonment of God. The statement continually reoccurs. And it says that David went out, and David did what David do, right? He struck down a bunch of Philistines. That's what he does. When David's in the spirit, God uses him so much. Unfortunately, this book has a sequel called 2 Samuel, and you're going to see that when he's not in the spirit, it looks a lot like it goes for Saul here. But that's what David does when he's in the spirit. But then you see Saul's downward spiral just put so front and center. Um, First off, when everybody's out to battle, it says that he sat in the palace with his spear in his hand. Um, That is always an ominous sign in the books of First and Second Samuel when people go out to war and the king stays behind to watch. We saw it previously in Saul's life with Goliath when the king was supposed to go and stand as the champion against the man of the between. We see it right now as he's staying with his spear in his hand to fight off all of the nobody in the safety of his palace. And then we're going to see it tragically in the life of David in 2 Samuel 12. When the kings go out to war, when Uriah goes out to war, and he uses it as an opportunity to be adulterous with Bathsheba. So this inactivity, you know, is a sign that something is about to happen. So when the war begins, Saul was, again, in a place where he shouldn't be, ignoring the place that he should be, Ignoring the commandments of God, and it says that a harmful spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul. And I want to take a moment to discuss this. You know, Pharaoh imagery, Exodus imagery, has been in the backdrop of the fall of Saul throughout this whole book. But now they're being contrasted so blatantly that if you're an Israelite, let me ask you, if you were an Israelite and you were familiar with the stories of the Jewish people, and somebody were to tell you a story like this, could you think of somebody appealing to a king to stop persecuting God's anointed people and to ask the king to let those people go, only for the king to say yes and then to swear that he would let them go and worship, only to take it back the very next day? Ever heard that story? Okay, Um, it's in the Bible for anyone who hasn't. It's in the book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 12. And what did God eventually do to Pharaoh's heart? Yeah. So it's intentional, the echoes of Pharaoh, as you see this spirit coming upon Saul. That's what's meant by this harmful spirit. God pulled back his protection, 
and granted Saul's desire. We're told in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the the desires of your heart. Um, Well, Saul was getting the desires of what he was delighting in. Delight's a dangerous thing. Um, So look at the rest of what we see in Saul here in these verses. You got David playing the lyre. So David's worshiping, probably writing a psalm or something at the time. And that makes Saul want to pin David to the wall. And I look at you and I see you happy. I see you joyful. I see you worshiping. And it fills me with bitterness and rage and contempt. Um, At the end of David's accolades, I want you to notice what it says about him when he's done um, striking down the Philistines. It says, so that the Philistines fled before him. Look what it says at the end of Saul's accolades, at the end of chapter 10. And David fled and escaped before him. So the fleeing of David is just yet another picture of God's spirit departing from Saul. If you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, in those first eight chapters, there's three times where the spirit begins to depart from the temple because of the sin of the people. And you see the spirit rising above from the Holy of Holies. And then he's rising above the temple. And then you see this picture of the spirit departing altogether. That's what we're starting to see as Saul is finishing up his stop on the second floor. So now we're going to go down to the first floor of Saul and his daughter. Look with me at verses 11 through 17. It says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. So Saul plots to murder David. This is the third time that Saul plots to murder David in this text. And this is the third time that God miraculously rescues David out of the hand of Saul. And then in 11b, where you see like this attack plan is about to come into fruition, it says these two beautiful words, but Michael. Um, I don't know if that's pronounced Michael, by the way. I don't understand the way that you guys pronounce um, that Michael Book Road, because it looks like Mickle to me. Um, so this word is just as odd to me. It, it looks like she should be Mickle. So Mickle Book over here. Um, but Michael. That's called a contrastive conjunction for any of you Hebrew nerds out there. And I know that you guys are infiltrated throughout the congregation. Um, <laughs> It's kind of like you see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, when it says that you guys were children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in his mercies, made you alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. That's the way that this is supposed to read. It's supposed to be jarring like that. My father is about to kill you, but Michael ends up being a tool of the Lord. And it's confusing, I'm going to tell you, because Michael's sketchy. Um, The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Um, This is, I I don't quite get this story. Like, there's going to see, there's going to be some real moral ineptitude that we're going to see here. And the Bible's so good, because the Bible accurately reports stuff like that. 
It lets you see it. It lets you determine what to do with it. It's not condoning it. It's not saying, you know what? You should be shady the next time you're in a situation. But this chick is shady, and you're going to see it in this passage. So first off, it says that um, she let him down to the window. She took an image, verse 13, and laid it on the bed. That means that the word image is the word idol. That's the word that's used in Genesis 29 when Rachel and Leah are fleeing from Laban. And it says that she took the household idols and put them under the saddle. And um, Laban's looking for the idols. This is the same word that's used here. This is, I don't know why she has an idol. Like I said, she's sketchy. Um, but she pulls the Ferris Bueller's Day Off trick. If you've ever seen that movie, you know, she dresses it up, puts it in the bed so Ferris Bueller can call in for a sick day. Um, and you, through it, you see God's third deliverance of David. So in verses 14 through 16, Saul sends for David so that he might murder him. Look with me. It says, and Saul sent messengers to take David. She said, he is sick. That's a lie. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in bed that I might kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillows of goat's hair at its head. So Saul confronts Michael. And confronting Michael seems to be about as um, fruitful as confronting Saul, right? Um, When she has the opportunity to tell of what happened, you see, again, she lies. Look at verse 17. It says... Michael, why should you deceive me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? And that didn't happen. At least we don't have any recording of it in the text. But what we see now, Saul has turned his son into an enemy. And now he's turning his daughter into an enemy. One litmus test when it comes to checking out the hardness or softness or condition of your heart is people who are growing hard and bitter tend to let jealousy and bitterness cause them to jettison the relationships that have been in their life. Perfectly good relationships, godly relationships. I want to look at Saul's propensity of turning friends into enemies as his heart begins to harden. I mean, two things in common between Saul and us when we begin to have a hard heart. Your world gets smaller and more toxic because you tend to just be with people with the same toxic worldview that you have, and you begin to jettison healthy people in your life, and your list of enemies begins to grow I just want to speak from my heart, ladies and gentlemen. I've seen so much of this the last few years. People making enemies out of mothers and fathers and daughters and sons. People making enemies out of entire friend groups. People making enemies of people where you almost want to look at them like Jesus did with Philip and say, Have I been with you so long, Philip? That you don't understand and you think I'm an enemy? Check yourself if that begins to become the arc of your life. You don't want to end up in a place where you are old, bitter, and angry. And the people that you used to love are enemies that you hold 
and contempt. Saul's fighting against his son here. He's fighting against his daughter here. I mean, my God, if somebody could have just shook his shoulders and said, wake up, what are you doing? You're screwing your life for generations here. But unfortunately, he's not done, and he's going to head to the basement in our final section. Look with me at verse 18. It says, now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it was told to Saul, behold, David is in Naoth in Ramah. So it begins with David fleeing from Saul to Ramah. Ramah was only about two miles away from where they were at. So, I mean, it shows that David wasn't fleeing very far. It probably took him, if he was running, which it seems like it probably took him like a half hour or 40 minutes to flee. And he tells Samuel all that's been happening, which... I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation, right? That must have been wild. It's like, Samuel, I haven't seen you in a while, but Saul keeps chucking spears at me and trying to pin me to walls. And he ends up staying with the prophet for an undisclosed amount of time. But in verse 19 that I just read, Saul learns of David's whereabouts, and he sends messengers to either kill him or to bring him to himself so that he can kill him. And this is another downward spiral of Saul. I mean, imagine from the place where you saw Saul as this young man hiding in the luggage, now he's going to go to the prophet's house to kill the king. He stepped over a lot of hurdles on the way to his hardening heart. So you see Saul's messengers in verses 20 and 21. And sometimes the Bible's just funny. And this is one of those times where the Bible's just funny as you look at these verses. And I will, wrong chapter. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So he sends these people to go and thwart David, but when they find Saul, when they find Samuel, they begin prophesying along with the school of prophets. I mean, it, this this story is ridiculous. It brings to mind Balaam and Balak and the donkey. Um, it's just impossible for these people to be able to curse David. So in verse 21, they come back and look what happens. Um, and when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. So they begin to prophesy. And what this is a picture of, and we'll see this more in a couple of verses, but God's spirit is able to overcome the evil intent of Saul's heart. Like I told you, there's this downward spiral, but there's God stepping in as a rescuer each step of the downward spiral. And I'd just like to speak to you candidly for a moment. If you are in a downward spiral and the elevator is going on, Jesus Christ is stepping in as a rescuer. Do you know how I know that? Because I'm telling it to you right now. And the good news of Jesus Christ is you can repent on the spot and Jesus will meet you right here and now. You don't have to choose to leave here and say, oh man, my elevator is just going to continue to go down. You can arrest that right now. God arrested that. He caused these henchmen to become prophets. He caused a donkey like me 
to become a pastor, God can do amazing things. Um, so the Spirit overpowers them, and Saul figures, you know what? If you need something done right, what? Send somebody other than Saul. But that's not the way he sees it. <laughs> Better not call Saul. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. These names sound like something out of Return of the Jedi. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're in Naoth at Ramah. And he went there to Naoth at Ramah, and the Spirit came upon him also that he went and prophesied until he came to Naoth at Ramah. So Saul asks where to find him, but when he asks, a strange thing happens. The Spirit of God overcomes Saul, and he prophesies all along the road until he came to Ramah. So it's going to get weirder when he gets to Ramah, but it's already weird. Like, he's just going down the road, and I'm just imagining just, like, ecstatic. This guy is just looking like a loony bin as he's walking down to Ramah. And then when he gets to Ramah, I want you to read or check out our final verse. He, too, stripped off his clothes and there, too, prophesied before Saul and lay naked all that day and all night, thus it is said, is Saul among the prophets. I have a message from Steve. I preached on the last time when Saul prophesied, and it was like this, and I, and I laughed as I was preaching and said, at least I'm not going to have the passage where he's prophesying naked, because that'll be Steve's job when he gets back from vacation. And here I am. So Steve asked me if I would let you know that the Spirit made a liar out of me. Um, <laughs> It's a definitely deterrence to my Calvinism because I have to wonder, did God know that I was going to preach today when I said that statement? But he strips naked and he keeps prophesying. And God has just such a funny sense of humor. It says that Saul ends up prophesying before Samuel and then he lays naked all night and in the end receives this mocking scorn with people saying, is Saul really amongst the prophets. I'm from New Jersey, so I read everything with sarcasm in it. So I don't know if your sarcasm detectors go off when you read that, but I'm thinking if you see a naked lunatic rolling around and you're like, man, that's my pastor. Like you're saying, <laughs> you're probably saying it with an air of sarcasm, right? Um, well, I think that that's what's going on here, but it was intended to show Saul's utter humiliation. Saul could have gotten off the elevator before it headed into the basement. He was rebuked, and he had the opportunity to repent of sin, but it also shows God's power. <clears throat> but in Saul's fourth descent, you see God's fourth rescue of David. And you're left with this tragic picture of this once gifted young man now living in full rebellion to the Lord. So that's how our passage ends. It doesn't end real cheerful. Um, next week, it's going to get even crazier. But I want to give you a couple of points of application as we close. First off, be on guard against a hardened heart. Um, one of the ways that's real easy and practical to be on guard against a hardened heart, I don't know. Does anybody in here journal? It's a lost art, right? Not many people do it anymore, but journaling is one of the best indicators I'm able to, I, I, can, I can look back and see things that I've written, and, and that works for the good and for the bad, doesn't it? I'm able to see tangible 
times of growth and be like, wow, remember when I believed that? That was crazy. God's been so good to me, and, and he's brought me so far. But I'm also able to say, oh, man, remember times when I hated my sin with a much deeper ferocity? And I guarded my heart a little bit more carefully than I do now. So I just encourage you to guard, be on guard over the hardening of a heart. It's not something to play around with. Number two, look at your relationships as a litmus test to gauge the softness or the hardness of your heart. Look at your relationships. I mean, there's times that people lose relationships. Just like, I just moved 3,000 miles, right? You're going to lose some relationships because of that. But if it's bitterness, envy, jealousy, rage, contempt, anger, dissensions, strife that's causing all of it, look at that and ask God, just show me the condition of my heart. Am I pushing people away? Number three is God provides rescue. A verse that was just so important to me early on as I was following Jesus says, no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And when you're tempted... God will provide a way out. There's no temptation that you're going through that would cause you to harden your heart that is any different than any temptation that anyone else here has faced or that Jesus Christ himself faced and was victorious over and gives you the power to walk in his victory. And the last one, and uh, musicians, you can, you can please come on up. Um, if the elevator's still going down, hit stop and get off the ride. You don't have to leave here still riding the elevator. God works through the repentance of his people. And if that's you, I want to encourage you with the words from Psalm 95, quoted from the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. I'm going to pray. Jesus, thank you that you protect us from hard hearts, Lord. You give us passages. You give us your Holy Spirit. You give us warnings. You give us the body of Christ. You give us the opportunity to worship and exalt you and praise, Lord. There are so many balms that you give us to apply to the sin-sick heart, Lord. God, would we take that balm from Gilead, Lord. God, would you make our hearts soft and pliable, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Jesus' name, amen. Music ministry blessed my socks off today. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You wouldn't believe they were asking for prayer this morning because they're all tired because this group of oldies was out rocking until way too late last <laughs> night. And they're here rocking for Jesus this morning. So thank you, guys. I'm just so blessed. Um, I'm going to, I usually stick around after preaching to talk with anyone, um, but I'm not feeling well, so I'm going to cut out. So if you took issue with any, anything I said, talk to Paul Betts. Um, <laughs> he'll make sure to convey it. Uh, there'll be people up here to pray with you if there's anybody that, that needs to pray. And uh, I'd like to share with you the new covenant from Jeremiah for our benediction. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Hallelujah. God, thank you for that new covenant that is ours by faith, Lord. God, I pray for anybody who has not received that new heart through faith in your son, Jesus. I pray that they would grow weary of trying to fix their old heart and that they would ask you to come into their lives, save them, and give them that new heart. And I pray for those here who have new hearts, but their new hearts have gotten kind of clunky and moldy. I pray that um, they would do business with you and that you would clean out the cobwebs. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. Thank you.